Hi, I'm Isol Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. When I talk to movie executives and producers, one of the topics that usually comes up is how the hell do we get young people to care about movies? That's a bit of a false premise. The data we see from streaming services like Netflix and Disney Plus suggests that young people are still very much interested in movies, just less so than previous generations that didn't have as many choices, and they're just watching them at home or on the go. The better question is, how the hell do we get young people to care about movies in theaters? A tougher question. Gen Z still does show up for certain types of films. It's just a lot harder to reach them and convince them through marketing than it was even 10 years ago. So what do they want? Genres, franchises, stars. That's where data can be helpful. There's a bunch of services out there that do surveys and purport to know the exact desires and preferences of Gen Z. That's the 11 to 26 crowd. Sadly, Craig is 28 and just a bit too old. Anyways, the studios take that data and try to translate it into movie choices that will be appealing to this group. The stuff that Gen Z cares about might surprise you, like it did me when I looked at the data from Movio, one of the analysis firms. The movie that most over-indexed with Gen Z last year, a tiny horror movie called After Ever Happy. I hadn't heard of that one. This year, the top movies for Gen Z are Across the Spider-Verse, Super Mario Brothers, Guardians 3, Ant-Man 3, Scream 6, Creed 3, John Wick 4, Little Mermaid, Megan. You see a through line through these movies. That's why I wanted to have on Matthew Liebman. He's the chief innovation and data officer at Vista Group, the parent of Movio, which tracks this stuff. And he hosts a podcast called Behind the Screens about the movie industry data. Today, it's everything Gen Z. What actually gets them to movie theaters? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Matthew Liebman from Vista Group. Matthew, first of all, welcome. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. So this is the modern equivalent of a a feature that the LA Times used to run when I was a kid, where there was a columnist, Patrick Goldstein, who before every summer would round up about 15 of his friends and neighbors, 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds, or 15-year-olds. Usually it was like 13 to 15. And he would sit them down, he would show them the trailers for upcoming movies, and he would essentially quiz them on what they liked. And this was the 1990s version of movie tracking, where he would say, do you like this? And they're like, ah, we don't like Jim Carrey, or we do like Jim Carrey, or Austin Powers looks funny, this doesn't look funny, we care about this. And that's what the studios would go on. They would go on the survey data out there. Now, flash forward 25 years, you have very sophisticated data on what Gen Z is into and what they are not into. So first of all, before we start, tell us who we're talking about here and how this generation differs from previous generations. 
what we're talking about here, Matt, are kids or people aged 11 to 26. And I think that's one of the first things to call out. This is a really diverse group. The youngest of them are still in middle school. The oldest of them have been in the workforce for a fair few years now. In the middle, you've got a bunch who can't go and see an R-rated film without their parents or guardian, and you've got all but um, the top five years of this 15-age break who can't even buy a drink legally. So you've got a very diverse group. Yeah, the first half is different from the second half. First half depending on their parents, second half not. 100%. You move from being within your parents' gaze to having a little bit of freedom in the world. In terms of a bit of stats, they represent about one in five Americans but they also represent about one in five moviegoers, which in itself is something to to maybe take note of because we always thought that movies outperformed amongst younger people and they're just holding their own here in terms of ratio of population to cinema going. What we have found is that they're um, more uh, infrequent cinema goers. So we define infrequent as somebody who's been to the cinema uh, fewer than two times in the last six months, so going roughly once a quarter. Uh, And they are sitting at about, 41% of their group in that category, and they've become more infrequent uh, over the last five or six years. And that is different from millennials and Gen Z in terms of the percentage of young people who make up the movie-going audience. It's correct. So what we're saying here is that they're representative in terms of whether they walk through a cinema door or not over the course of a year but they're underrepresented by how often they do it over the course of a year. Um, And we're also seeing that they're slightly more um, increasingly female skewed over time. But the one that really jumps out is how this generation has morphed over the last five years is they've become incredibly more ethnically diverse when you look at the cinema subset. So it's dropped about 12 percentage points from the Caucasian mix with most of that being bolstered by the Latino community and by the African-American community. So young Latino and African-American moviegoers are increasing in this age group, but white moviegoers are decreasing. Yes, true. And as a result, the aggregate of that is no real change in terms of the number of them walking through the door at least once, but in aggregate, they're coming as a group a little less frequently than they did, say, five or six years ago. And we know all the reasons for that, you know, streaming and video games and all the other options that are out there that, you know, are chipping away at that audience. But this data does show that it's actually happening. I, I think probably people might be more surprised that it's not happening more, that there are there is still a Gen Z audience who does want to pay to go see movies. You're right, not just pay. One of the things that jumped out when we look at their behavior is that they're happy to book online. In fact, they outperform the non-Gen Z cinema goers in terms of willingness to book online. And why that jumps out to me is surprising is you pay a booking fee when you book online. And this is the generation that has the lowest disposable income unless they're stealing their parents' credit cards. Well, which most of them are, but let's be honest. The lower half has access to their parents' money typically. But it also changes a bit of the behavior. You know, there was always a stereotype, and I'm aging myself a little bit, but I would go to the cinema with my friends and we'd look at the marquee and pick what film to see. So the occasion dominated, it was the the motivating factor. If you're booking online, you're planning. And so there seems to be a little bit of a shift away from that spontaneity of going to the movie or going to the mall and then saying, hey, look, we've eaten in the food court, let's go see something upstairs. But it also potentially adds a little bit of credence to Adam Aaron saying that there's a willingness amongst Gen Z to pay better for better sightlines. 
Uh, Adam is my buddy, the AMC Theaters CEO, who we've talked about on the show. He yep. is a controversial figure because of all of the investor stuff with the apes. But he, he has said that younger audiences are willing to pay more for a better experience. And what you're saying is the data does show that. Yeah, I think there's definitely that that digital native aspect to it, but I also thought there might be a bit more penny pinching. So it's Maybe. nice to see digital native beats penny pinching. <laughs> so let's talk about the genres that yeah. Gen Z prefers, because I'm looking at this list of the top 2022 movies that over-indexed with Gen Z, and it's Smile, it's Scream, it's The Black Phone, it's Terrifier 2, Orphan First Kill, a lot of horror movies on that list. Yeah, God help us when we're in nursing homes and need this generation to look after us if this is what they're they're ingesting. But now. that's not unusual, is it? I mean, the the horror genre has always skewed younger. Is there something that Gen Z is attaching itself more to or less to? Look, the two genres that they're most outperforming, you nailed it in one with, with horror. Um, and I think when that horror comes with a tinge of humor, Scream 6, Megan, uh, it, it becomes even broader. And we can dive a little deeper into that if you'd like. But superheroes are still up there. So when we look at the last three years, the number one film for Gen Z in terms of, of waiting have been No Way Home, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse, and Across the, the Spider-Verse. And number two in 2021 was Venom. So you got Spidey adjacent there. Right. So you're seeing those. You're also still seeing animated. And so Super Mario is the number two that we're seeing so far this year. Um, but you've had Minions. And that's a really interesting one as well in terms of its outperformance. You know, Minions, we were looking at that franchise through the original Minions into Despicable Me 3 into Rise of Gru. And there was a decline from the first of those films to the second in terms of Gen Z. And it's one of the few where we saw a reversal and Gen Z came back for the third installment. And I can't help but think that that viral Gentle Minions thing started to to eventize the movie, you know? And that was not something that Universal created. That was a fluke. That was something that just happened online. You're 100% right. And it also caught exhibitors by uh, surprise. So at first, some of them leant back and tried to ban this sort of thing. They thought (laughs) that it could cause trouble. And I think there's an element of having to balance the enjoyment of everyone in the auditorium with a bunch of of rowdy kids. But at the same time, if you want people to get off the couch and go to the cinema, and this generation is probably more anchored to the couch than anyone else, you've got to eventize it. Right. So you're recommending that these companies create virality. And virality is something that is very difficult to create. Yeah. And you're right. The more corporate you are, the more it has a smell to it. But you look at someone like Alamo or a chain like Alamo Drafthouse, which eventizes just about every film. And it's much about walking into that building and having the Alamo experience for Barbie or the Alamo experience for Indy. That's how they make their bread and butter. And we look at how cinema is is re-emerging from the pandemic and I'm confident it's going to get back. But you can't just let the content speak for itself anymore because there's so much stories, uh, storytelling and content out there. If you want people to get in the car and come to you, it's got to be the end-to-end experience. And I think this is where you look at an element. I'm looking at that list of the top movies from last year, and a lot of them had adjacent marketing phenomena. You look at something like Smile, where they did those stunts with the Smile Girl out in the real world. You look at something like Don't Worry Darling is on the list, and that had the entire discourse around it with Harry Styles and Chris Pine and Miss Flo and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You look at the Orphan movie also had that stuff going on. I bet this year, Megan 
will be on the list for that exact reason. The, the TikTok dance. Like, it's sort of depressing that you sort of have to have a TikTok element to get young people interested in a movie. But if you're a studio executive and you're looking at your movie that you've got coming out, how do you just do that? Like, there's only so many, like, grimaces from McDonald's that you can, like, <laughs> create and say, oh, it's Grimace's birthday. Remember him? And then it takes off. Yeah, you're right. It is lightning in a bottle. And the other one you've got to throw in there is Scream 6, where they were putting Ghostface coming through public security cameras and, and the like. And that one has gone nuts. But I think it went nuts for a couple of reasons. One is the virality, the mix of horror and humor together, but also great Gen Z stars. You have General Ortega in that. It, you know, Wednesday yeah. was coming out. And these right. people, this, this generation is watching streaming programs on their phone, if their favorite stars come once or twice to the big screen, that's going to pull them in as well. And so one of the areas we looked at, Matt, was the Fast and Furious franchise. And that's one where Gen Z has fallen over the last three installments quite precipitously. Oh, interesting. How so? Well, what we saw is that the Gen Z audience for Fast X was above 30% when you look at Fate of the Furious. And it's about 23% for Fast X. And that's a really big drop. That's one of the biggest drops we've seen in a generational share across the franchise. So is it just that they're losing interest or is it that there has not been a viral component to these? I think there's a few things. I think they're possibly losing interest and maybe that's seen in the box office in aggregate. So it's not yeah, just I mean, let's be show. honest, we're all losing interest in this. But one of the aspects that we've seen also is this franchise is aging. You know, maybe instead of adding Rita Moreno and Helen Mirren, you know, they, they put <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo and Jenna Ortega in there. Not a bad idea there. Yeah, I mean, you know, Vin Diesel's 50 years old now. But still, it, you know, if you're going to try and make this franchise so long, you've got to try and pump the next generation through all the pipeline in. Yeah, I mean, but we could go on and on about the aging of the box office stars and we have on this show and if you look at this summer it's harrison ford and tom cruise and vin diesel and you know those are the stars that mean something to a general audience but what you're saying is that you know these younger audiences don't necessarily respond there's got to be something extra for them look i think there's that they don't respond to the stars in the same way their stars are different their stars are on stranger things but also they have options to stay home. Why would they go out? And I think we are entering the experiential age of cinema. You know, we've been through the luxury phase. We've been through the recliner phase. We've been through the, the screen and sound phase. This one has to be about experience and service. And part of that needs to be looking at a Gen Z and saying, we've got disposable income. How do we give them an experience that makes them choose us over the couch or the food court or the bowling alley or whatever else they're, they're doing to spend their time? So give us some other lessons that we might take away from this summer at the movies and what's out there and what Gen Z cares about and doesn't care about. Look, I think there, there is that horror aspect that we've talked about. We've seen that when there is virality, there is excitement. But there's a couple of other things we saw in the behavior. Gen Z go early. They come on the opening weekend and drop off fast. Within the opening weekend, they tend to go Thursday. So they're there at the evening previews. you got to get in quick. We know the, the box office is generally front-loaded but is most front-loaded for, for this group. You've got one shot to get it. Why is that? Is that just because it's a FOMO thing? I think there's a FOMO thing. I think there's a TikTok thing in, in terms of short attention span onto the next thing. It's just something you need to, to focus on, and there's no getting them back. 
Yeah, I mean, that's it's just so brutal because then if they don't like it, they just blast it on social media and you're done. You're absolutely right. Back when I started in this industry, you could buy an opening week with an advertising campaign in the newspapers. Then it became an opening weekend. Here, you're dead after the opening sessions. But the flip side is phase your efforts. The older cinema goers often have the same desire to see a film but want to see it in week two or three because they don't want to be there with a bunch of gentle minions, even if they're going into the next auditorium. So prioritize Gen Z and phase your marketing into later weeks to try and pull the boomers and older in if it's a a film that appeals to multi-generations. So you're saying you try to get, if you're Marvel, you try to get the young people in that opening night and then you go out from there. Let the rest of them do it. You know, and that doesn't mean, you know, this is a four quadrant film. They're not going to do just Gen Z. But what I'm saying is, especially if you're an exhibitor as well, focus on the Gen Z first, focus on the, the evening showtimes in particular, and know that the rest will come. And some of them are intentionally waiting for that crowd to dissipate. There's a changing of the guard between weekend one and weekend two. The other one I think is build a relationship. On the one hand, there's a feeling that Gen Z don't want to join loyalty programs. The research shows that they're quite willing to give up personal information, more so than maybe you and I are, in return for something tangible. Like MoviePass, AMC Stubbs, though, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, and look, it could be the paid programs. Um, it could be the subscription programs, like the, um, the MoviePass and the Exhibitor's Zone equivalent. And if you can convince them to do that, then you've locked them in. And the marginal cost of going to a film, you know, I'm already paying for this thing. Why don't I go one more time with my friends? I think the other aspect here is if you do all of that, if you build the connection, if you eventize the film, then um, you start to potentially shift the behavior back away from only going to the cinema where there's a movie you want versus it's an occasion for us and our friends. And to an extent, we'll work out what film to see when we get there. What about texting? and phone use in theaters. Is there any data on whether Gen Z would go to movies more or less if they were allowed to text and send stuff to their friends and even chat during the movie? It's really interesting. I'm going to give you a straw poll of one. My 16-year-old daughter stabs anyone in the throat when they turn their phone on. So I've raised her well. All right, well, but that's anecdotal. I want to, I mean, that's I anecdotal. think if there, was, if there were two theaters for every show, of a new Marvel movie or whatever. And one of them was free for all anarchy, do whatever you want. And the other was you better not talk or you're getting booted. I think that you would have success in filling both theaters with kids who wanted that free for all experience. I have no data on that, but I, I tend to agree with you. And it's what I was saying about building experience. Let's do things differently. Let's supplement the story on the stream. And if one is the free for all animal house auditorium and the other one is this pristine version, Just like throwing shit and like, you know, people can run up to the front and do jumping jacks, whatever they want. Yeah. Yep. I'm I'm in the one next door, but I think there's a place to at least experiment. This is what this industry needs to do right now is try new stuff to see how we pull these generations in. Okay. So what other franchises do Gen Z look forward to, care about? The numbers on John Wick were pretty funny to me because, you know, Keanu is almost 60 years old and that skewed younger than I would have thought. So it's not just the age of the star, right? There's a lot of things going on here. Yeah. I mean, that's the living video game. And so that Generation Z male would lean towards that. The one that jumped out to me as most unusual was Creed 3, which outperformed amongst Gen Z and almost solely due to an outperformance of male Gen Z. Now, on the one hand, you've got Michael B. Jordan, who is 
broadly of that generation. Is he though? I mean, isn't he like 35 now? Yeah, but I guess when you, there's been research that Gen Z still likes Robert Downey Jr. I guess he's their Iron Man. So he's right. younger at least than some of these guys. But it's also a boxing story. Uh, and it's the Rocky franchise. Right, so which is 50 years old. <laughs> hell yeah. And so you talk at, at, fast, uh, at John Wick, I can at least go living video game. Creed, terrific film. I was really surprised it appealed to this generation. Interesting. I wonder if it's because it's new. It like Because Mission Impossible started when they were not born yet. And John Wick and Creed actually came out as they were coming up in movies. So it felt like a franchise that started when they were alive. Yeah. And they don't think of it as Rocky. They think of it as Creed with some old man who advises him. Yeah, they have an ownership over it. They can actually right. talk to somebody about, oh, I remember when the first blank came out. They can't do that for Mission Impossible or Indiana Jones. Yeah. That's a great sense. And I think your point there, Craig, is the sense of ownership. You know, maybe you're right that this is our franchise. It's not our parents' franchise handed down. Well, that was prevalent with the Gentle Minions thing, right? Where these yeah. kids were like, this is ours. Like, we own uh-huh. the Minions and we're going to step, we're going to dress up and respect the Minions. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and one of the things that, that we think about is cinema going is one of the first rites of passage you get, the freedom you get as a, as a kid. And this was a bit of anarchy in your freedom because, you know, th- these are teenage kids. It's a very safe sense of rebellion but there's this living on the edge for our franchise not that safe trust me there were some gentle minions in my screening and i almost beat one of them up (laughs) well we didn't have them in ours um but i i I could probably relate i think all right so other summer movie stuff i mean are they into the comedies that are coming out like these r-rated comedies this summer what does the data show about gen z wanting to see R-rated comedy in theaters? Or is, is comedy now a streaming thing? I don't think we've had enough yet. Of course, we had no hard feelings last weekend and we saw a solid performance there. But this still and you look at what You look at the press that Jennifer Lawrence is doing. She's doing media that is designed to appeal to very young people and very online people. She's doing, you know, what's the one, Craig? The Hot Ones. No, she did hot ones. A lot of people do hot ones, but the one in the in the UK, the the chicken shop. Oh yes, uh, chicken shop talk or chicken, chicken shop, shop date. Yeah, yeah it's like it's stuff that you know you would not normally see Jennifer Lawrence doing, but she's trying to get out the young person audience, and those people are seeing promotion online and in within their feeds. Yeah, and I guess you got to get a little lateral at the moment without the talk shows on um, right, and right, the right. viral clips that come from that. Uh, I guess once we get a bit more of a track record, when we see Strays and some of the other edgier R-rated comedies coming out, we'll be able to make more of a call on, on what the trend is. But I don't think we have enough just yet to say, is it a blip or is it a trend? Yeah, it would be interesting to see whether young people show up for these comedies this summer. Obviously, they were not showing up for bros last summer. Uh, but no. Billy Eichner is over 40. Uh, so it's not like that's a good comp on this. That's true. All right. So if you were advising a studio, as you, you guys often do with your data, what is the best way to approach a green light? Like if you're looking at a green light of a movie and you say, we want this movie to appeal to people between 11 and 26, is it just give them a few characters in their age range? Is it make sure there's horror with comedy? Is it, you know, what is it about a project that gives it the best chance of being successful with this age group? 
I'll give you an answer and then I'm going to undercut mm. my own answer a second. Okay. Um, but the first part is, is along the lines of what you said. Look at what's been successful previously. You know, meld the horror and comedy seems to be a sure bet, especially since it comes with a comparatively lower production cost than having to do it with Marvel. Um, I think then try and, and be creative with your marketing. Now, where I'm going to undercut that is any time a, a studio has tried to paint by numbers on a prior success, you know, I'm going to age myself, but Pearl Harbor being a carbon copy of Titanic or, or those, you know, every gangster film that comes out one after the other, the, the Me Too facsimiles never seem to find the audience the same way because it lacks that authenticity and lightning in a bottle. What should they do with DC? I assume DC scores lower with Gen Z than Marvel does, correct? 100% right. It does appeal less. And one of the reasons I wasn't able to um, do that sort of franchise review that I did with Marvel is there's just this inconsistency from one to the other. I could give you a couple of Guardians, a couple of Ant-Men's. When you look at Marvel, you're basically doing four or five iterations. You've got Justice League and you've got Snyder. When, you look at D- got when you're Flash. talking about DC, you mean? I'm sorry, DC. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really hard to, to get an apples with apples comparison. You're not sure what you're seeing or buying each time you go and see that film. But I guess that's what James Gunn's trying to do with, with his version of a DC universe. Well, they're, they're trying to copy Marvel, but the whole previous regime was saying that that's the appeal of DC. You can do a Joker franchise in the same world as you can do a Batman or Justice League and have them be different and filmmaker driven. But what you're saying is perhaps uh, for the Gen Z audience, they want to know the branding of the uh, of what you're going to see. I think there's a little bit of that. Um, You know, we saw Shazam as one of the last titles that came out really underperformed with Gen Z. Um, Shazam too. Shazam, yeah, Fury of the Gods. Mm -hmm. It played a little bit on the younger than Gen Z and a little bit older, which is probably parents with young kids. Right. I I guess the challenge on the other side is, you know, we're almost asking for generational commitments and and at home viewing and in theatre viewing for Marvel. So there there will be a happy medium, and you know, even a a a poor or a, a slightly disappointing DC film takes a hell of a lot of money, which represents. I mean, we we talk box office a lot in our industry. Box office is a proxy for somebody giving up their time and their money. There's still a lot of people doing that. I think we're looking at tweaks. And, and massaging as opposed to throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And Flash. Flash is a tough one as well because it had a young star, but also a young star with tons of problems. Yeah, I don't think you could lay that at the feet of, of the studios. <laughs> I think uh, it was a Trojan effort to do what they did. Right. Thank you very much, Matthew, for coming on the show. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, I'm going to list four shows and you tell me which is not a current show on Paramount Plus, okay? This is my favorite game. Let's do it. Star Trek Prodigy, The Game, Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, <laughs> and Queen of the Universe. Um, I'm going to go with Pink Ladies. No, that's real. I'm going to go with the last one. The last one's fake. Queen of the Universe? Yeah. The answer is it was a trick question. They are oh. all they are all real and they are all being purged from Paramount Plus very shortly. Paramount Plus announced this week that they are canceling those four shows and not only are they being canceled, they are being deleted from the service into the great TV purgatory where they are not on DVD. They are not anywhere. They are just gone. We are going to pretend they never happened. And this is a trend these days. 
You're seeing it at HBO Max. You're seeing it at Disney Plus. You're seeing it at Hulu. This past week, they got rid of Alaska Daily and a couple other shows that are just being disappeared. And it's really happening at all the services except Netflix. The, 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 the tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, they have not done this. But the traditional streamers have done this, except for one. And that is my prediction today. Peacock has not deleted shows yet. Oh, and no. I, I believe it is coming. I don't know which one it'll be. But my prediction is Peacock will begin to delete some shows. And this is just a money-saving tactic, right? And Peacock, out of all streamers here, needs to save a little coin. I would think so, but they have not done the purge yet that others have done. If you delete them, because you have to pay license fees for these shows if they're just sitting there on your service. Do they have a smaller catalog compared to the rest? They do, but they have some originals that nobody watches, and they could make some money. I mean, Paramount Plus got rid of, like, Inside Amy Schumer and, like, a couple of shows that, like, you've heard of. And they're just doing it because they need to save money. All these companies are losing so much money on streaming. They need to find ways to cut costs. And if they look at the data and there isn't sufficient viewership of these shows, they're just going to get rid of them. You know, it's like a throwback to the 70s and 80s where if a show got canceled, it would just disappear. I mean, can't they license things like Inside Amy Schumer to other places or something like that? They probably could. Maybe they will. But some of these others... Uh, They're I don't too think, small to be licensed. I, yeah. yeah, I don't think Queen of the Universe has much of a market for licensing. Maybe. I had never heard of any of those four shows. <laughs> the Grease show I had heard of because I was like, what? They're doing a prequel to Grease? Like, who is that for? It almost sounds like a horror film, like the Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. Like right. Rise of the Pink Lady sounds like a zombie spinoff. Oh, the, there is a clip going around Twitter of the dance sequence from Grease, the end, but set to Nine Inch Nails, I believe it is. Or something like that, where it really feels like a horror movie. Nice. I like heavy metal grease. That's a good idea. Yeah, it, it, it takes on a sinister appeal, of course. Okay, so Peacock, I don't know what it is. I don't know what show it's going to be, but Peacock will start purging shows. That's going to happen. It's almost embarrassing if people don't push back. Like, you almost hope that people will be upset. Otherwise, it shows that nobody cares about your shows. Peacock probably wants people to complain because it shows that they're relevant. Yeah, that somebody has watched it. Yeah. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Matthew Liebman. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. Bye.